Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, <laughs> this feels, this feels The moment like, you decide. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, uh, I don't know what yeah. I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Always edit. <laughs> so this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, we're calling this the History of Christian, no, wait, A History of Christian Theology. Um, yes. and, uh. I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. I'm your host, Chad Kim. This week I will have with me Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams as usual. My apologies for the delay in getting this podcast uploaded this week. I got a little bit sick midweek and had a lot of work with school, and Tom Velasco has been out of the country. Nevertheless, we have for you this week the Apostles' Creed. This was a creed that developed out of what is also known as the Old Roman Creed, which probably has its roots in the second century, uh, but wasn't formalized as a creed as we know it until at least the third century. But it looks very much like what Irenaeus is doing in his canon of truth um, that ultimately becomes the rule of faith, and these creeds play an important part in that. Um, so this week we will be discussing the Apostles' Creed and how it helps Christians think rationally um, and what it means to believe in something, what does it mean to think critically. All of these questions we will be addressing um, in contrast to the sort of scientific thinking that we do in the modern day. Uh, what does it mean to think critically as a Christian? Uh, so I hope that you will enjoy Tom, Trevor, and I's reflections on these questions um, and stick with us. Um, we'll get back to a regular schedule next week. Should we read it really quickly? I mean, it's short. Might as well, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, I'll read it really quickly. Uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I also believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, I know when when I suggested that we read this, uh, it was largely inspired by Irenaeus's rule of faith, right? What we read right. in Irenaeus, which more or less was kind of a really primitive uh, version of the Apostles' Creed, as far as I could tell. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, I think for me, I was just kind of thinking that it was about time that we hit on it. At the same time, uh, stuff I read for today indicated that the Apostles' Creed may not have been as old as I always thought it was. Well, yes. I mean, there are different historical narratives. I mean, there are different, you know, um, Justo Gonzalez writes a book called The Story of Christianity, a popular level church history book, and he posits late second century. Um, most contemporary, you know, most scholars um, of a more, I, I, well, I don't know. A lot of other scholars will say it's uh, probably early fourth century. Okay. Mm. I read something uh, that said, 
I read something that said the first definite reference we have was Ambrose in 490. Which uh, would be crazy because that would place it. 390, not 490. Uh, it said Ambrose in 490. Well, yeah, you're right. Ambrose is a little earlier than 490. But, or yeah, 390. Yeah, yeah it definitely said 490, but that would be wrong. You're right, though. Um, in any case, that's still post-Nicene Creed, which seems to me that the Nicene, that the Apostles' Creed must have been prior to the Nicene Creed because the Nicene Creed, I mean, it seems to borrow the skeleton of the Apostles' Creed, right? Right. I would, I would think so as well. And plus, isn't there basically a uh, formula given by Paul somewhere in the New Testament that's very similar to the Apostles' Creed? Um, there are... There are several ideas for one. One of them is Romans 1, people say, is a proto-creed. Um, Romans 1, 3 through 4, the gospel concerning his son who has descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, the idea, I think, for any creed is to have a Trinitarian formula um, so people, when, they, when there is sort of mention of the all three uh, members of the Trinity, uh, you know, that those are, might be sort of proto-creeds. But uh, so even Matthew 28 is taken to be the paradigm, uh, baptizing them. You know, I send you out uh, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there's an intimate connection between Matthew 28, baptism, and creed um yeah which by the way we might ought to back up and it might seem overly simplistic but i know for me i come from a church tradition which does not recite any creeds right so i don't know how much people or i shouldn't put it that way what i should say is i would imagine a lot of our listeners don't even know what we mean by the term creed right so um maybe even backing it up slightly and just letting our listeners know what that means. Uh, the word creed comes from a Latin word credo, which means I believe. And so a creed was meant to be a declaration or a statement of your beliefs. Um, and the Apostles' Creed, which we're examining right now, uh, is the oldest, most entrenched, most recited statement of Christian belief in the history of the church. Uh, in, in so many Christian traditions, it is recited every week. You'll recite it in the Roman Catholic Church, the Anglican Church. You recite it in the Lutheran Church. Do, do the Eastern Orthodox recite it regularly? Uh, yeah, but not the Nicene, not the Apostles. They they recite the Nicene. The Baptist and Methodist churches and Nazarene churches who also have said it before. I can see that with the Nazarenes. You've, I've never seen a Baptist church do it. I mean, it was it was only, I, I don't think it was a normal thing for them, but I have been to a Baptist service where they did it one time. It may have been a special occasion, I don't recall. But, but last time I went to a Methodist church, they did. Uh, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me that it would be in a Methodist church. Or yeah. And not to get into the particulars of each denomination, but Methodists are actually, and Nazarenes are both in some way, shape, or form descendant from Anglicans. Yeah. Um, so um, it would make more sense. Um, they're like and the Baptists, right? Mm-hmm. Basically. Yeah. But yeah. Wesley was an Anglican prior okay. to. He was always an Anglican, actually. Yeah, I guess that's true. I was going to say prior to his Methodist uh, um, movement, you know, prior to start the Methodist. 
prior to starting the Methodist movement, but I don't think he really intended to make that a new denomination. Yeah, so typically Baptists reject creed. So I was raised Southern Baptists, and we reject sort of the idea that the church can tell you sort of what to think. Um, it's, it's very much up to the individual congregation and even more specifically up to the individual himself or, or herself, their engagement with the scriptural text. Um, so there's a real strong sense of, not, uh, of not wanting to keep reciting something as rote um, and to some degree not laying out in such a strict form exactly what to think. You know what? In all fairness, I still think it was a Baptist church, but if this adds anything to it, I think now my memory is serving me that it was not like something the whole church said. It was something that the pastor was like, I think, talking about or mentioning or teaching on or something like that. But yeah. that's that's fair, yeah. Well, that seems to be pretty typical of of your your kind of standard low church contemporary evangelical um, uh, you know, denomination or maybe independent church, um, there tends to be a rejection of church tradition first and foremost uh, and creeds uh, in favor of the sufficiency of scripture itself. And so the idea is that reciting a creed is often kind of looked at as unnecessary um, because we have the scripture. So let's just read the Bible because the Bible itself uh, is the source of truth. So it's, it's, I think, partly looked at as unnecessary. And also, just again, a part of this kind of contemporary evangelical culture, which is very individualistic um, uh, and really focuses on kind of a personal interaction with the Scripture, it, it ties in too much to formalism and to old liturgies. And I think maybe people think of it as too Roman Catholic as well. And so I think there's a lot of kind of prejudice against the creed, which has led to not contemporary denomination rejecting it, not, you know, not reading, not, you know, not reading. Yeah. So, and I mean, so yeah, the, the, it's either in Latin, we call it a symbolum. Uh, it's a symbol and it's meant to be uh, in some way, shape or form, the outline of the faith. Um, so it goes through um, belief in God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy spirit, and gives a little bit of an idea of, of, how each one sort of functions, the the bulk of it uh, being related to Jesus dying under Pontius Pilate uh, uh, or uh, being per, um, prosecuted under Pontius Pilate, born of the Virgin Mary, um, and then ultimately killed by Pontius Pilate, raising again. And then under the Holy Spirit is the age of the church. Um, and uh, But yeah, so those are looked at as the three sort of markers um, you know, and I always took it to be a summary of basically what Christians thought. Um, and that's how a lot of times it is used. It's like, oh, what do Christians believe? Well, let's go to the creed. Um, this is the simplest way to sort of say what even scripture sort of tells us about uh, who God is. Uh, it, it says in there, of course, that I believe in the Catholic Church, which uh, I know has been a source of contention amongst some friends of mine. People don't want to say that they believe in the Catholic Church because they take it to mean that they believe in the Roman Catholic Church or the authority of the Pope or something along those lines. 
But as has already been alluded to, the Apostles' Creed, which we just read, is recited in many different denominations, uh, many different non-Roman Catholic denominations. Just want to remind our listeners that the term Catholic just means universal. And so uh, Christians, really until the very, very most recent part of history, uh, have always called themselves Catholic, whether they were Roman Catholics or not. Protestants identified themselves as Catholic as well. Um, It's really, again, it's this contemporary evangelical uh, kind of 1900s, you know, 20th century denomination that rejects formalism and connection to the old Catholic Church. So it's a common mode of uh, referring to the church. Right. And um, so one thing that I mean, I've sort of been exploring recently, and I even found sort of um, relates to uh, both Augustine and to Irenaeus, for that matter, um, is this idea of what does it mean to think as a Christian? Um, And so one way of sort of viewing the creed, rather than even just a summary of what you have to believe, some people don't like it, they feel like it's a it's sort of a, it's a, it's like a measurement, a ruler stick, and you hold it up to someone and say, look, you don't measure up. You don't, uh, so this is the idea of a canon, right? Um, and, and a canon is a ruler and you don't measure up, but rather what I think like even Augustine says, um, like in the, in Latin, we say either credo deo or credo in deum. And one of them means credo deo. It means like, I, I sort of believe God, and, and Augustine uses James here, James 2. He says, well, even the demons believe, um, but do you trust God? Um, and so there is this sort of, uh, there's a deeper meaning to the creed. The creed states for us, well, I trust that there's one God. And what this is is sort of a, a, a committed act of faith. Um, and you are assenting to what Irenaeus is sort of calling the first principles of the faith. Um, and so these are sort of the groundwork assumptions for Christians and that we work out from there. So they help us to think about the whole world in light of God, the creator through Jesus Christ and co- the confirmation in the Holy Spirit. This is how we think through everything that we see. And so they're sort of, they're really, you know, as first principles, even for Aristotle there, you can't argue for them. They've just taken Um, for granted in order for the argument to work so it doesn't end in infinite regress. And so for Christians, these, I I like this idea that they're kind of the base principles. We trust in them because we entrust in the person of Jesus Christ, who we take to be, um, you know, summarized in a way in this, in this uh, set of assumptions, as it were. That's a really good uh, point you bring up about faith, meaning trusting in something, because I remember I didn't really hear that until, was 18 and faith at the time seemed really synonymous with just believe without reason, which is how a lot of people use it in a negative way against Christians. But I realized that, uh, yeah, faith meant trusting in something the same way you have faith in like someone asks you, well, your car make it 250 miles. And you're like, I have faith in this car. (laughs) It's not like this unreasonable belief. It means, yeah, no, I have some reasons to think that this car's trustworthy. And that's, it's actually kind of based on reason, actually. So it's, no, I just like that you brought that up. And are you saying that that's actually what's meant by the Latin as well? Or that's what's meant by the original language of the creed? Um, Augustine would say so, yeah. 
Okay. You know, that's uh, a re- uh, oh, go ahead. Were you going to say something? Well, I would say that's an Augustinian interpretation of it. I mean, ultimately, we're going to get into sort of scholasticism and other things. Um, but, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but there is, you know, there's no way for the early Christians to separate out sort of principle, like things that you, tenets of the faith that you assent to and the action of trusting God and then also the way that you live. Um, so we, you know, I, I mean, I was sort of raised thinking Christianity was about getting your beliefs straight. Um, and once you had your beliefs straight, well, then you knew you were going to heaven. Um, and, and rather I, I take, you know, I like Augustine's interpretation. It's, it's no, this is a commitment to a way of thinking. And it's not about getting, getting thing lined up, make sure you dot your T's and cross your I's and you're thinking the right way. You have the right beliefs in your head. Um, it's that you're trusting in the person of God and the character of God as, you know, seen in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I would, uh, you know, kind of thinking along those same lines. I mean, I think a lot of people ask a couple of questions that correlate to what we've been talking about. Um, one, people I, I find, and, and I guess I'm not, they're not, I shouldn't speak of it as if it's other people. I do the same thing. But, you know, there, people seem to be driven by this question of, how do I know somebody is a real Christian or a true Christian? And so you mentioned that, uh, that the Apostles' Creed serves as a kind of uh, measuring stick, so to speak. It's a way of kind of asking a group of people, do you agree to these basic claims? And if you do, then we can say, maybe not exactly that you are really a Christian, like really born again or whatever, but we can say with a certain degree of confidence that you are um, a part of the group. And there's a lot of practicality to this because, um, you know, on the one hand, we all are very concerned uh, to, I think, as humans, like, I don't know, we want to be right, not just in the sense of we want to be right because it's some kind of a an ego boost because it makes us feel good to be right, but I think because there's a legitimate, authentic fear to being wrong, right? Um, we want to make sure that we're reading the scripture properly. We want to make sure that we know what God's message is. We want to make sure that we know who to share the gospel with, who to preach to. Um, and if we're wrong about what the proper standard of faith is or the proper rule of faith is or what have you, then um, we might miss that opportunity. We might not be upfront and honest with somebody. We might not share the gospel when we need to. Um, But kind of as a corollary to that issue, uh, you, you mentioned a moment ago how you used to think of Christianity as kind of a certain set of propositions that if I, I got these all right, I would go to heaven. And I really liked the comments you made because it seems to me that a lot of Christians kind of get really confused in talking about faith. Like people will talk about, quote, saving faith, end quote, as if that's like a different kind of thing from just faith in general. Um, But I really do think when the scriptures talk about faith, uh, they really would underscore a different meaning to that term than a certain belief or assent to a certain group of propositions. Right. Um, when you say you, you, you when you say I believe in God, uh, you're not saying I believe that he exists. Yeah. 
Uh, although that would be a corollary, you couldn't believe in God if you didn't believe that he exists. It's an implication. It's yeah. an implication, yeah. for sure. So, too, when you say, I, be- I trust in Christ for my salvation, that isn't a statement about your belief, although there's a corollary implied belief that yeah. he did die and he did resurrect. But it really is personal, right? It's, it's about trusting. I, I love Trevor's analogy that your car is going to make it. But, it's all- <laughs> but I would take it also to this, trusting in a person. Right. Um, You know, uh, if I if I put my trust in you, if I have faith in you, then that means I have confidence that you're going to do certain things. Right. If I if if I had a child and I trusted you to babysit, that would mean that I have a certain belief that you're going to take care of my son and that you're not going to hurt him. And that is based on certain things I believe about you. So what I do find is, is that what I love about talking about this is that one, we find that what we believe does matter. But I think it doesn't matter in the way people think that it matters. I, I think people are thinking of it as a checklist to make sure that they get right. the right things checked off. What we believe matters, but it's because of what our beliefs do in terms of fashioning our trust of God himself. How, like how we trust him and what way we trust him and what way we can trust him. There's a, there's a side conversation that goes on amidst all of this in the history of the church so, you know, we talked about Irenaeus of Lyon, you know, he's second century. We think this creed, third century, maybe, you know, just to split the difference. Um, <laughs> it's at least rooted in what Irenaeus said, right? So, I mean, right. it's if, if this creed that we read is not the one that they were doing in the second century and maybe earlier, it's at least akin to one that they were doing. Oh yeah. The, uh, so oh, the other things that go on with the idea of creed that Tom actually brought up in a way, actually. So there's a there's been a set of criticism of Irenaeus and other early Christians saying that when they developed these creeds, what they were trying to do was find a way to kick people out. Um, and and actually, it's kind of funny because even when you read like you know really well renowned scholars they sort of think of the creed just like Tom did. And they say, well, when Christians say the creed today, they seem to be finding a way to kick people out or proving who's in and who's out. So that must have been what Irenaeus got up to. Um, He was looking at Valentinus and says, no, you don't measure up by my little standard, so get out. Um, And, you know, and so there's a lot of modern scholars. You know, I've mentioned Bart Ehrman, um, and, and Elaine Pagels when we talked about the Gospel of Thomas, but they read those Gospels of Thomas, those other Gnostic Gospels, and they say, okay, so the Christians didn't like the Gnostics, and the Christians had all the power, and everybody wanted to be a Christian, and every interpretation of Christianity is okay. Um, so let's, you know, let's look back at these sources and find the ways in which the Christians with all the power were really mean to those poor guys who just <laughs> believed something a little bit different. I mean, that's that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. You know, it, thinking about the creed as a point, in a sense, of divide, which I think they, they want to use it critically, you know, Elaine Pagels, and who was the other scholar you mentioned? Bart Ehrman. Yeah, they want to use it critically, again, to kind of say, again, well, just reaffirming what you just said, that, that those Christians in power were using it to kind of hold back those who believe something slightly different. You know... In virtue of identifying yourself as something distinct, you are going to differentiate and and not everybody's going to be included, right? That's just the way it is. 
Um, my father is from Mexico. That makes me Hispanic. And Chad and Trevor, you guys are excluded from that. You guys are not a part of that group, right? And Chad is a doctoral candidate. Me and Trevor are not, which <laughs> makes us radically inferior to Chad. <laughs> right. Um, you know, but what that does is that is a kind of exclusion, right? Um, as by simply identifying yourself as a Christian, there is going to be kind of an exclusiveness in that. Um, and I think that can be okay. I mean, you know, obviously what makes it a little more difficult is we are excluding uh, concerning the, the most core and fundamental principles to us, right? But it has to be so. If the most important thing in the world to me is is Jesus Christ and the most important thing in the world to uh, somebody else is, uh, well, is not him, whatever it might be, that is just, yeah, that is fundamentally a divide between us. And that doesn't mean we need to treat each other poorly or talk bad about each other or try to fight each other or whatever, but that division is real. And to try to pretend that division isn't there is, well, it's just fantasy, which I feel like a lot of people are are kind of living in nowadays. I mean, uh, you know, this, this whole movement to try to say that everybody essentially believes uh, is, is okay to believe whatever they want and that there's no normative way to assess that. I, I don't know how we got there. Well, I mean, I kind of know, but it's, <laughs> yeah. but it's, it's just not a very helpful thing. Um, once upon a time, people in Western culture believed that there was, there were things that were true. And they believe that the way to refine that process and learn more about it is to argue and to discuss and to bring points against. And the truth is they still do. It's just what they do is they close off that portion of the world, call it science and say, none (laughs) of you guys are allowed to talk to us about it. We're just going to dictate from on high what is true. You guys feel free to believe whatever stuff you want to about God and morality. Cause all of that is, we all know stupid anyway. So feel free to talk about it, but over here we'll have our corner on what's true. We don't want to talk to you about it. You know, I mean, it's just not helpful. I will say just, this was the one, one big thing I wanted to share here uh, that where the creed can be um, in a sense uh, distinctive, it can create a division. It also can be incredibly unifying, right? And I saw this post from a friend of mine. I hope he doesn't care that I shared it. Uh, I He didn't tell me I could, but I'm sure he's okay with it. He posted it on Facebook, so I there assume you go. want that to be out in the world. Anyway, uh, he just reflected uh, two weeks ago. He says, it's great to recite the Nicene Creed after the homily at church. No matter how much you might theologically disagree with what's said, you then get to confess the same words as the one whom you suppose has really gotten it wrong. And so what I love about that, so a little bit of background, he goes to a liturgical church where they recite both the apostles and the Nicene Creed. And what he's saying is he heard a sermon that he disagreed with the sub, the substance of or disagreed with some points. And he said he loves that right after that sermon, he proclaims the Nicene Creed, sometimes the Apostles' Creed. This was what he proclaimed that day with that same guy who preached that sermon. And so for him, that was a unifying effect, that he disagreed with that guy while he was preaching, but he can stop and say, in spite of the fact that I disagreed with him, we have this very substantive foundation at our core, which brings us together, which is that we believe in one God. 
and Jesus Christ, his only son, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, buried, and rose again three days later. And so in that sense, the creed can be, while divisive, yes, can be incredibly unified. Yeah. No, for sure. And I think that's probably definitely its original purpose was mm-hmm. to sustain and maintain unity. I don't know. Although, well, couldn't you say that to to sustain unity will always also be divisive? Oh, yeah. Because it must sustain unity with one side that's creating a subgroup that's going to divide from something else. Unless it is literally the unity of the entire universe. Yeah. <laughs> No, it will always is, be dividing. This is just a logical consequence of having a creed in general. Yep. That, yep. that has statements in it, <laughs> yeah. where statements can be either true or false. Yep. I guess we are assuming the principle of bivalence here, but... Which means that things can either be true or false. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and not in between. Just kidding. So it appears that even um, Epicurus was one of the first ones to use. So the other word that goes along with this is canon of truth. That's what Irenaeus calls this. He doesn't actually say creed. He says canon of truth. And it appears, um, I'm working on a paper right now on this, that some of the philosophers talked about a canon of truth um, in a similar way. And what they were asserting were okay in order for us to have an argument we have to agree to some ground to some first principles um and once we've agreed to those uh you know then we could try to figure out some particular issue so in, in a way what you were saying about your friend he can say well i'm with what i'm of one mind with my preacher what what do i mean by that well i'm of one mind with him about the fact that ultimately the you know the bedrock is that there's a uh, there's a you know a trinity um, and that God's uh, God's love for us is shown in, in His Son Jesus Christ and so what that means for how I interpret um, you know uh, the creation what do I do with the creation what do I do with the earth you know environmentalist environmentalism well I'm going to root that my concern over environmentalism in my belief. In a, you know, in the creed. And so my what I think to be true or false about his claims from the pulpit, I'm going to base on some de- to some degree on the creed. And so in the same way, the philosophers did this. They said there were different schools and that was kind of a way different schools had different canons, had different rules uh, and, and br- base principles on which they worked. And I so I even see this to the next degree. What, what I think Irenaeus is doing and the early Christians before Constantine um, is they were kind of saying, hey, Valentinus, that's cool that you think that Jesus and Christ are separate people and that God didn't really want to create the earth. And there's a secret gnosis uh, by, and a secret knowledge by which you get back to God. But that's not really what we believe as Christians. And so if you want to believe that, go do that over there. But you don't all you don't agree with us on this base structure, um, and so our conversations are just going to go in different directions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which yeah. it's not as if we as Christians are the only ones with this core definitive set of beliefs, right? Nope. I mean, I think about the rhetoric that surrounded um, uh, much, basically the political rhetoric that surrounded the decision to invade Iraq, right, and to fight Saddam Hussein. Not to get into politics, because that's not my, the goal of this show. I just want to point out that much of the political rhetoric that was used by the leaders, by American leaders like George Bush, was that we are, we are a democracy, they are not. 
We need to bring democratic principles to them that they might learn democratic principles. I say this because what is clearly a core value in the political world today in Western Europe and America is this notion that democracy is, is, is true in some sense. It's, it's reliable. It's the thing that is good. It's, it's the thing that kind of needs to be a starting point that if we can set that up, then everything can kind of fall into place properly. Not everybody believes that, right? There are lots of people in the world, lots of countries, lots of cultures that reject the notion that the proper way to organize civilization and organize culture is uh, through some through some kind of a democratic restructure or structuring. What that ha- what that does is that creates significant tension between those two views. Same thing for people who are empiricists, and that's uh, you know basically somebody who believes that really fundamentally all knowledge is gained through the senses, through uh, essentially scientific observation. People who hold well, to that and what's that? I was going to say the scientific scientific method. If it is anything, it is a creed. It's a total creed. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And and by the way, for our audience, please don't take this to mean that we think all of this is that these things are bad. I like the scientific method, but it is a fundamental value that those pe- that that, uh, that somebody who well, I was going to say scientists, but it's more than that. That so much of our culture holds as like the definitive. Um, way of coming at truth. Well, and to me, this is ultimately, I mean, what we've come down to, and I hadn't sort of foreseen it um, when I, when I, before we started the podcast, but I could tell as it was taking shape that this was where it was going to go. Is there, there, you know, one major issue in Western Christianity over the last five, 600 years has been this sort of divide between what people call faith and what people call reason, right? And so reason is usually a kind of substitute for science and faith is kind of a substitute for sort of Christian faith. And, and it's sort of like, Oh, well in the private realm, we'll let you have faith in what you want, but there's no reason there. No one's actually thinking. Um, (laughs) And then there's the public realm where facts are held. um, And that's the scientific realm and we will leave those up to the rules of inquiry, the creeds um, of the scientific method. And so really, to me, the divide between the two is basically competing um, creedal structures. Yes. Um, and that's all it is. I, that's a wonderful observation. I think you're absolutely right in that. And that's, I think, it's so unfortunate because... People don't realize this is the case. They genuinely approach it and just say, oh, well, over there you have uh, the scientist, and the scientist is just objective, and he has the facts, and he has reason, and over there you have the bishop, and the bishop doesn't have those things, um, but he talks about stuff we care about. Um, so, you know, that's just the way it is. We don't, they don't realize that there is fundamentally a creed there's a dogma underlying both, mm-hmm. right? Well, and ultimately, I mean, this is, may get a little technical in the Latin, but a fact, it comes from facere, factum, that which has happened. Um, and opinio is, is, just, is, a, is, a, is actually a sort of a tenet or a proposition. Um, but we've come to think that there are these value-neutral facts, um, and this is an invention of, of sort of scientific realism, I guess, um, whereby a fact is a discrete event 
that no, that where there's no value um, in a fact. But in reality, all things that are ascertained through science, all things that are learned through science, there's a value underneath that underlies it. And those values are generated by the scientific method. And that value is something like, if I can figure out what is true with this scientific method, um, then a fact is what comes from the scientific method. An opinion is what comes through, uh, with, that doesn't come through my method. So in a way, all it's a different way of asserting true and false and, and applying value. But the problem is, is in our modern parlance and conversation, you know, we don't always think about all the assumptions that go into our, our language. And so we say fact um, and we're sort of carrying with it all this baggage of scientific sort of objectivism. Um, and, and that seems to us to be um, impartial. Um, that seems to be the, the best way to figure out what is true. Um, but it really is just a different way to assert um, a value. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. I remember one time I was in a history of it was Mediterranean religions class. I, I ended up dropping, actually, the first week. But it had nothing to do with this. But it actually ended up having to do with a better class I could get. But I remember... They ask, like, one of the first days, they're, like, asking what our majors are, and everyone in the rooms, I'm a history major, and then there's me, and I'm like, I'm a philosophy major, but I just thought it would have been interesting, and she asked the class what a belief is versus what a fact is, and yeah, you got this giant weird distinction, like, beliefs are these things, and specifically since this was a history of religion course, it was like beliefs are these things that uh, religious people have, and <laughs> they have them, you know, not really based on reason at all. And then that's that's what a belief is, basically. You just hold it, and then there's these facts. And I was, like, sitting there like, well, and, you know, I'm just thinking to myself, well, knowledge is justified true belief or something like that. And I'm, I'm thinking belief's a component of what you know, and, and I, I'm like – kind of confused because of my philosophy background. So I'm just saying, like, are th- this is what people really think. Like, people just assume, you know, just religious people have beliefs, and somehow a belief is, like, this negative thing all of a sudden. It was it was very strange. Just saying, like, I believe, I realize, just doesn't carry a cultural weight that it should or, you know, could have if we really knew what we were saying. I mean, like, philosophers, you say you believe something. I mean, we... We take that to mean, oh, he's almost to knowledge. Like, he's yeah. almost there. That's part of the concept, actually. So it's like this, I don't know. It's it's very interesting how, how different it is, even just from the philosophy world. But in general, yeah, yeah how well, it reflects on our Christianity, yeah. Well, you know, you saying that actually reminded me of, I was taking, I can't remember what class it was. It was a philosophy class at Boise State um, with Dr. Cortens. Yeah. And who, for anybody listening, he was... He was my college advisor and had a huge impact on me. I'm a big fan of that guy. Um, But I remember he came into the class and he asked the class to define truth. What made something true? And, uh, you know, people threw out various answers till he finally said, okay, look, I'll tell you what truth is. It's not complicated. A statement is true if the world is the way the statement is, says it is. So if... So the statement George Washington was the first president of the United States is true if George Washington was, in fact, 
the first president <laughs> of the United States, to which this girl, very confused, raises her hand and says, but that's not true, which right away is ironic. <laughs> um, because what is she saying? Is she saying that the world is not that way? Or is she saying something else? She then says, because the world used to be flat. At which point, Dr. Cortens leapt onto the desk and started jumping up and down saying, no, <laughs> the world was never flat. They thought it was flat and they were wrong, which by the way, they actually didn't think it was flat. Everybody's always known the world is a sphere. Yeah. That's a, that's a myth that people believed in a flat world. <laughs> Just saying, but, but he, he says that, but all my, my point is, is the way pe- people interact with the notion of truth and reality and knowledge and belief is so bizarre. Um, it seems to me that in general, in our culture, they literally break it up into two camps. Whatever the scientists say is fact and whatever, what everybody else says is just okay. Right. As if yeah. it's just okay for us to believe whatever else, as long as it doesn't go into that other realm, we like make a dichotomy in our mind and we allow somebody else to kind of define what is real And then the rest is kind of the normative value stuff is stuff we just get to wrestle with and make our choices however we see fit. But what classical thinking says, not just Christian thinking, but what Plato and Aristotle, the philosophers all said was, there either is a God or there is not a God. If it is true, then it is a truth that holds true for everybody, whether you're a scientist or not, whether you use the scientific method or not. It is True or it is false, period. And that's what Trevor meant when he said, if you accept bivalence, which is that every statement is either one or the other. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, we all accept bivalence in this. <laughs> the categories that they have in their minds just are fact, unquestionable. And only philosophers, it seems, have the ability to engage in meta discourse, to step aside and say, wait a minute. Is it possible that the categories with which we're viewing everything are not? And that holds true whether you're a Christian or not. (laughs) And and, philosophy, I mean, someone with the appropriate attitude, not just someone with a degree in philosophy. Yes. Because honestly, that sometimes doesn't get you there. No, but if you got a degree in... Sam (laughs) Harris. I guess that's true. But if you got a degree in philosophy from Boise State, you're probably okay. (laughs) <laughs> or Oklahoma Baptist University or Oklahoma Baptist University we better cut like all this no stuff. I love it they'll love this stuff it's a background cool. yeah well and I mean I feel sort of bad when I like because it always ends up being about me but someone will say well I'm just giving you the facts and I said well <laughs> that's not <laughs> I was like let's talk about that what makes you think you're giving me the facts yeah 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 but <laughs> you know but here's the thing it's just the way 21st century Americans think educated and uneducated Christian and non-Christian by the way for our audience I mean what we're criticizing it's not as if this is only the case with non-Christian or non-religious people right Christians and not, and, and religious people also do the exact same thing. A complete inability to step back and reflect upon their own assumptions and challenge and question their own assumptions. Um, yeah, I mean, and unwilling to look through, the, you know, to understand the narrative by which they define the world and trying to understand other people's narratives. Like, So we all do it. I mean, I, we do it, I'm sure. I mean, oh, yeah. But well. at the same time, I really do think studying philosophy helps you to really 
be able to step back and question, to be more self-reflected and more self-aware. Yeah. Even well, I remember when I took like the senior comprehensive assessment course at BSU where it was just kind of like, what's everyone going to do in their career after they graduate? That's kind of basically what a lot of the course was about. I remember we're asking all these people, and a lot of people weren't going on to study philosophy at grad school. They were all philosophers, but they were going on to, like, go do, you know, sales jobs or work for some business. And I remember when we would ask them those things, like, you know, how did philosophy help you? That was, like, one of the number one answers always came back was I was able to just listen to people with different views than me and examine their views critically. And fairly. And fairly. Yeah, there's a principle of charity that does not exist, definitely, in the rest of the world. It's very it's very strange. Like, in just normal conversation, it's, I don't agree with them, so no charity at all. It's like, try to smash them in the ground. I remember I got bees on papers. I mean, when literally I just wasn't charitable. And that's actually what I got the bee for. My professor's like, your argument's fine, your critique of their argument's fine. But you're, like, not charitable to them at all. Yeah. You take, which we call, like, arguing straw man. When you just take the worst of them and argue against that, the weakest thing you can find, that's not that's not charity at all. To Try to take them at their best. Try to take someone at their finest and argue with that. But Real, real quick, <laughs> I would say there have been moments where I've been uncharitable in this podcast in a way. But part of what I – even what I'm trying to show – and so I should say they're not totally unre- like some people are not totally unreflective. You know, generally speaking, they ju- they maybe the first thing that they learn though is sort of a postmodern deconstruction, and they don't know the principle by principles by which they're deconstructing, or they're not self reflective about that. And so that's where like I want to take it to the next level. Like you can be aware that mm, yeah, not everything's as as objective as we think it is. You know, and sort of offer the relativist critique but the relativist critique is insufficient. So I want, you know, so I'm always trying to push to the next level. Like some people can get as far as sort of, you know, imperfect knowledge, um, but then keep, go to the next point. Well, and I, you know, there's no doubt we are like, we talk all the time, meaning just over the course of life, like people just, you just talk and you're often not self-reflective. And you often say things that if you had known somebody would take it a certain way, you would not say it. Um, And it's one thing when the three of us are talking here on the podcast, I'll make all sorts of claims and I can, it's part of my personality to kind of be a little tongue in cheek to maybe be a bit sarcastic from time to time. And there's no doubt I've committed straw man fallacy where I've put down another person's view when it wasn't a strong, when I wasn't taking on a strong um, position. And there's no doubt that uh, I can poke fun and be offensive to people who disagree with me. I don't think that that's okay. But at the same time, I think that that to some degree is part of uh, just part of being human in the sense that you can't always engage in every conversation with everybody. But at the same time, when you are engaging in that conversation with somebody, when that person presents themselves in a real living way, like you really do want to stop and be thoughtful. And, you know, I constantly am having people criticize, not in a bad way, but just say, Tom, you overspoke there or you were a little insensitive there. And I do try to work that out, um, but I'm not perfect with it. 
Um, but I do have to say this. It seems to me that when you're in, in a conversation, if you're engaging in reasoned discourse, presumably there's two reasons, one of two reasons. Either you're trying to convince somebody of something or you really are trying to search out the truth of something. It seems to me that in both cases, or I should maybe I should word it this way, in neither case is it a good idea to, to be negative and to put the other person down and to mock or to engage in, you know, to attack a straw man. Because by doing any of those things, number one, you're going to be very unsuccessful in convincing people of your case because people don't want to listen to somebody who's mocking them and, and poking fun at them and all that. And two, you're clearly not open to the possibility that what they're saying might have some merit to it. So it's just not a helpful way to approach discussion, dialogue. Yeah. Man, well, I, I don't mean to cut it too short here. We're getting close to 6.15. I'm supposed to eat dinner with my family at 7, and I got about a half-hour drive. But, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think this – you know, we'll see how this, uh, you know, when we get to it. But I think this is a good podcast because, you know, this is one of the other conversations uh, that often is attendant with theological ones is the sort of faith reason. Um, yeah. and, and I like the Apostles' Creed as a place to start that. And I'm sure we'll come back to it with the Nicene Creed. Um, but, yeah. Awesome. Good. Thanks again for listening this week. Sorry about the delay. We will be back next week on the regular schedule discussing Athenagoras and Theophilus de Autolycus, two second century Greek writers. We also are working on having a live broadcasting of A History of Christian Theology in Boise, Idaho sometime in the month of November, so be looking forward to that. Please check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash A History of Christian Theology. Thank you very much.